Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 7. Um, so that's Psalms in the middle, and then two books to the left is, is Esther. Um, we are in the seventh week of this little series called Brave. And um, let me ask you this question, a little word association. You can shout it out if you want to. You don't have to. But um, when I say the big reveal, what comes to mind? Anything pop in your mind? When I say the big reveal. Um, see, it could be. Physically, right? It could be so. Um, a lot of people here like the Biggest Loser, so you know they have like this big reveal where they kind of bring the family in and they kind of see the transformation. Um, anybody here watch Extreme Home Makeover back when that was a big deal? And like, you're like move that bus. And now there's some other show. What is that show? Like um, the Gaines family from down in Texas, and they like the Fixer Upper. Yeah, that's a great show. We love that show. So um, there's you know they're always like splitting the picture and they see the new reveal and all that kind of stuff. Um, this, I don't know, this is probably not as big of a show as it used to be, but um, who, no, you can't raise your hand if I was going to say who in here we used to watch Springer. Okay, you did. So there we go. Um, there's a big, that was a big reveal right there. That was a big reveal. See how that worked? Um, but Springer would be an example of a, a, maybe a bad big reveal. You know, like people would go on that show, they'd go on national television and they would explain, they like reveal what was going on in their personal life about somebody else. Like, I'd always watch that kind of go, like, why don't you just have a conversation? Just tell them, like, one-on-one. I don't understand why you're going on national television to tell them all the bad stuff. Um, th- th- this morning, Esther 7, we're going to see um, a big reveal. Re- if The bigger the reveal, they either, they, sometimes they, like, they make you hold your breath or they take your breath away, right? Like, that's kind of how big reveals are. And so this morning, we're going to see a reveal that's kind of that big. Like, you kind of like, <gasps> what's going to happen? And then when you see, you're like... Just what? I told this story a couple of times because um, it's, my, it's my favorite story. Anytime any I'm talking about being exposed, this is the one I have to tell. Um, that I heard about a, a church that had, they were church in the round. And so church in the round is like when the pulpit's here and then people are all around you. So it's not just you, but like if we could wrap you all the way around and I'm in the middle, that's a church in the round. And so there was this church in the round and they were having baptism service and they, they didn't have changing rooms. And so what they did was they, they rigged up um, on both sides of the platform, they rigged up like these wires that went around the top and they hung really long black drapes from the side. From, from those, those wires. So like that would be like the, the women's changing room and the men's changing room. And so this one man, he goes in and he gets baptized and he goes in to change. And then the lady that got baptized after him, she like came up out of the water happy, right? So like in, in Pentecostal churches, that means she's dancing. She's all over the place. She's just, and so while she's dancing, just like she's excited. Her foot caught the black curtain and tune. And the black curtain came down, and when it did, the man who had just been baptized was in the process of changing, and he's in the middle of the church in the round, buck naked. And so the ushers, they thought really fast. They're like, you know, they run back, and they hit the lights. And so they hit the lights, and the ushers like, one, two, three. You know, like he gives them like 30 seconds, and then he flips the lights back on, and the man is just, he's so shocked, he's just still like, <laughs> you know. That's a big reveal, right? That's, that's not the kind of reveal that we want. So um, let's talk about this in chapter, Esther chapter 7, the big reveal. Um, the overarching theme, like what we're going to see in this chapter, um, a couple, couple observations and then some parallels hopefully to our own, own lives. We're talking about exposing the enemy. 
Um, be brave. Expose the enemy. That's what we're talking about this morning. So um, let's talk about some things we got to know. You already see the one up on the screen. If we're going to expose the enemy, then we probably need to know who the enemy is. Um, I got to spend some time this past week with a veteran of the Vietnam War. And I was, I love, um, I've, I've never been in, in war. I've never been in battle. So when I get to sit down and hear the stories of people from, from different wars, I love that. And so, you know, as we're sitting there talking, he's kind of telling me stories. He told me, he said, the hardest part about that war, and maybe you know this, is like you just never really knew who the enemy was. He said it was weird. He said, you know, we came back from war and like they didn't, we weren't received well. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend. We think a lot about like people who've given like the ultimate sacrifice to serve our country. He said, we came back and like they're yelling at us and calling us baby killers. And he said, the thing about Vietnam that was so hard was, he said like, you might see a kid in the daytime at the market and selling you something and that same kid could be trying to blow you up that night. And you wouldn't know. And he said that was the hardest part, not knowing who the enemy was. And sometimes, like, we can struggle with that, can't we? We don't really know who our enemy is. So I wanted this morning help you see who the enemies are. Now, we read this in Esther chapter 7. It says this in verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Again, this is a second banquet. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked Queen Esther, what is your... What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. That's not good. If we have been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have, been kept, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Verse 5 King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther knew who her enemy was. And she said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. I, I want us to be as clear about our enemy as she was. Okay, so you got your note sheets. I'm going to give you three enemies that we have. All three of us have the same enemies. The Bible mentions all three of these. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give you a scripture verse that you can put next to it. Uh, and I'm not going to try to explain all the ways that we deal with these. We have community groups for that. You can, you're going to talk about that this week in community groups. But here's the first enemy. The Bible mentions the world. you got three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's talk about the world. Um, 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 says this, verses 15 through 17. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Um, it's, we're not talking about the physical world that we live in or the people in the world. Like the worst thing you could do is go up to somebody today like, you know, while you're eating at, at a restaurant and just look at them and say, I hate you. And they'd be like, uh, are you still going to tip me? Right? What do you mean you hate me? Well, I have to hate you because my pastor read this, this verse that says, I can't love the world or anything in the world, and you're in the world, so I can't love you. I hate you because I love Jesus. How many of you know that's not a good way to testify, right? That's a terrible way to testify, okay? I hate you because I love God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like the things in the world. What he's saying, what does the, what does the Bible mean by the world? It means this, 
the spiritual worldliness that makes a godless world my goal. See, what did he say? The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does. See, when we think the world, we think this. This is what we don't want to be. People who only look at what we can do, what we can have. We don't even think about a father and his love or how he wants to play that out in the world through us. Man, the world is like, a, it's like the world view, like a, a, a whole culture that says we don't need God. That's one of our enemies. And, and if we took the time to go around right now, we won't do that. If I asked you, like, what are some examples that you can see in our culture right now where people are kind of shoving God out of the picture and how that tempts us to sometimes say, hey, I'd rather go that way than follow Jesus. That's what he means by the world. That's one of our enemies. So think of the world as external temptations. External temptations. Second enemy you have is the flesh. Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. You ever read some passages in Scripture and as you read them you're like, ugh, this is, sounds terrible. This is one of those. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Paul writes this, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Um, that phrase, sinful nature, that's what, that's flesh, okay? That's what, and we're not talking about like your skin, like some of you, like, let's have some surgery, make my skin look better. That's not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about the flesh, this sinful desire that we have, this sinful nature. Verse 17, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you don't know, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So right about now, the people that are reading this for the first time, and maybe even you, you're like, okay, so um, I should live by the Spirit, not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, but I don't even know what that means. And that's when Paul, I love how Paul writes. He, he anticipated that question, right? So he says this in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh refers to our sinful nature. Mark Driscoll, he defined it like this. It's a good definition. The flesh is our fallen internal resistance to obey God. I don't know if you, if you want to admit that you can relate to that, but I, if, if the world is external temptation, then the flesh is internal temptation. It's that thing that rises up inside of us when, when we know that God's telling us to do something, and we're kind of like, no. I mean, maybe you don't ever do that, but I, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. That's the flesh. That's, that's, it's like, and it just comes out of nowhere, right? Like, I think I'm doing pretty good with God. And all of a sudden, he's like, I want you to do whatever. And you're just like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just this internal fallen nature that says no to obeying God, that makes us kind of resist God. So you've got the world. You've got the flesh. Here's your third enemy. You already know who this is coming. Who is the third enemy? The devil, right? So you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that we have an enemy and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, he's our enemy. We know that without a doubt. How do we defeat the devil? 
Well, you'll talk about this more in depth in your community groups, but Matthew chapter 4, just jot that down. I, we probably should defeat the devil the same way that Jesus did. I'm thinking if Jesus went head-to-head, face-to-face, toe-to-toe with the devil and beat the devil, I'd like to know what Jesus did so that I can also, you know, be on the winning side of that confrontation. And the way Jesus defeated the devil long before the cross was with Scripture. He would say, yeah, but the Bible says this. And he would quote Scripture. Maybe that's a good plan for us. So if the world is external temptations and the flesh is internal temptations, then the devil would be demonic temptations. Um, let me sum this up, okay? Just, just one section. Knowing who our enemy is. I, I don't know if you notice this, but people are not mentioned as an enemy. Do you notice that? I mean, not even the... They don't agree with me and they get on my last nerve, people. Do you have people like that? Like, they just get on your last nerve. Like, if you're having a bad day and you go to Walmart, you just, you get out of the car going, I know I'm going to see, fill in the blank with the name, right? Like, even that person, the Bible does not list as your enemy. Many Christians, many Christians were way too quick to blame the devil. And this is an important observation. I'm not sure if I'll say this right, but I want to I try to get it across. Um, do you know people that blame the devil for everything? Oh, like the devil made me do it. The devil's all over me. I'm being attacked by the enemy. My, the devil, he's a prong on like a wrong line. He's trying to, to deceive me, yet whatever. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Just think about this. Think about that as three waves of enemies, okay? So we fight the world, and we fight the flesh, and we fight the devil. Can I just submit this to you about our lives? I would, I would almost say that none of us have even gotten to the devil yet. We, we can't even beat the world, right? We can't even overcome the external temptations. And we're blaming, oh, I'm in, I'm in hand-to-hand combat with the devil. Uh, well, no, the devil's kind of sitting back going, yeah, if you ever make it to me, maybe we'll talk. I, I think if we get past the world, then it's the flesh, right? It's like the internal temptations. That's what we struggle with. I, I don't know if we're ever... I'd, I wouldn't, I'd like to have a life that was so victorious in those areas that Satan has to, like, get off his butt and attack me. But I don't know if we really do. Maybe we give ourselves a little bit too much credit. Last observation about this, and then we'll move on to number two. Um, so we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. People are not an enemy. Ephesians says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You'll talk about that in your community groups. Many Christians are way too quick to blame the devil when what they're really doing is they're struggling with the world around them and their flesh within them. And then here's the last thing I want to make this observation about knowing your enemy. When you know who the enemy is and you're exposing the enemy, it's not time to be cute. It's time to be direct. It's time to, um, you've heard this phrase, call a spade a spade, which is not God's permission for you to be a jerk. Because I know people like that. Well, I'm just calling a spade a spade. Now, you're being a jerk, right? But don't beat around the bush. Say it for what it is. I, I love Esther in, in Esther chapter 7, verse 6. Look how she calls out Haman. When the king said, who is he? Verse 6. And Esther said, uh, it's, uh, um, starts with H, ends with man. Um, he's sitting on your right. <laughs> she didn't do that, did she? Listen to what she said. The adversary and enemy 
is not only Haman, but this vile Haman. I love that. Like, when you know your enemy, don't play patty cake. I'm just, I'm just kind of trying to convince the devil to, you know, like maybe leave me alone. No, man, just call it for what it is. Identify the enemy. Know your enemy. Stop, stop calling, and you'll, you'll see as we, go, as we go along, we get into the part where you'll hate the sermon. Stop calling the enemy a weakness, a struggle, a bad choice. Call it sin. Expose it so that you can deal with it. If you're going to expose the enemy, you have got to know your enemy. That's the part where most... Um, most right-wing fundamentalist white Christians go, this is sweet because this is where Paul's going to go full-on political and call out Obama, right? You know? But before we get to that, right, and before we go there, let's, let's talk about number two because this isn't about anybody else, right? Let's go to number two. If we're going to expose the enemy, not only do we need to know the enemy, we've got to know who's got our back. I'm going to make a statement, then I'll just kind of make sure you understand it. Esther didn't broadcast the news about Haman to the media. Now, I know, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but if she'd have had Twitter, she would have used 140 characters the right way and had told everybody how bad Haman was. I'm sure she would have put that on Facebook. She might have even started a, a, a closed group at first about the evil, vile Haman and then opened it up to everybody to join. What, what I want you to see is this. She didn't broadcast the enemy to the media, she didn't broadcast them to, the, to her blog. You know what she did? She went straight to the king. Man, we, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, you got an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when you've got problems with the enemy and you identify the enemy, just do me a favor. Get off social media. Put your phone in your back pocket and leave it there. And just go talk to your king. Take your enemy to your king and let the king, as we'll see in Esther 7, deal with your enemy. And that, that's, that's so simple and so brilliant, right? I mean, sometimes we're, we're going to everybody else about the enemy, but we're never going to the king. Esther went straight to the king. Listen, nobody goes into a fight without first knowing Who's going to go with them? Um, we've got to know who's got our back. I love this picture. Don't you love that picture? So cute, right? So cute. Like, that dog's got the baby's back. And we've got to know who's got our back. And, and you can try to convince other people to go with you. And usually what that ends up happening is, is Christians sign a lot of things like called petitions and boycotts. And, and again, I don't want you to, like, go to the extreme. Well, Paul's totally against that. I'm not against that necessarily, but if we're going to just like get a bunch of people horizontally to go in with us against a common foe who oftentimes isn't even the enemy because we already said that people aren't the enemy, but it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we're going to go horizontally in against the foe, then I think we've missed one of the most important points. It's, it's good if we're united, right? But it's better if I know that I have a king who wants to defend me? This is where we need to know who's got our back. 
the king. Esther was smart, man. I, I love what she did. Just looking back at verse 1, just, just look how she approaches the king. If I found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty. I mean, she's like, she's, I don't want to say buttering him up in a bad way, but she's like prepping him, right? She's making sure, like, king, you're fantastic, and you are, you're my king, and if, it, if, if I've found favor, you know, just grant me one request, right? And then what's the request? She doesn't lead with kill Haman, does she? Because she's smart. Like, do you see what she's doing? She's making sure that the king's got her back. She doesn't lead with kill this jerk. She says, spare my life. Grant me my life and spare my people. And he had no idea that was coming, right? At this point, he's thinking there's a third banquet, some more drinking, right? Like, she's like, if I found favor with you, spare my life. Spare my people. We've been sold for annihilation. Man, when she finally got to the part where he said, who is responsible for this? She knew. Man, she knew. She, she had him. My king's got my back. Because even back then, and, you know, we've talked about King Xerxes. He's the king of the world in that time, and he's really um, full of himself. He thinks he's fantastic. And what's interesting is, I know, because... If you watch Lifetime or you, you, know, you read any kind of you know, like chick flicks, you watch chick flicks, read romance novels, what you're hoping to see here is, oh, that's so sweet. Like she won him over and he moved heaven and earth to protect the love of his life. Now, that's not really what happened. What happened was in that day, if you're a king and somebody attacks your queen, you have to defend that if you want to stay king. And, and she made sure that she painted that in such a way that even if he didn't care about her, because we already know from the story, she hadn't seen him for 30 days, so they're not really tight, right? She made sure that he knew, man, somebody's trying to take me out. Somebody's trying to take out your queen. And that just gets to his pride. And he's like, who's messing with my queen? Who's trying to do that? And that's when she said, because she knew that she had him, this vile Haman. Listen, your king's got your back. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures just to jot down. You'll see them up on the screen. Psalm 140, verse 12. All these, all these have the same common theme, which is this. The Lord's going to take up your cause. He's going to protect the innocent. Man, this is your king. This is your king. You go to your king and say, um, I've got an enemy and right now, it's the world. I, I, it looks like co-workers, but it's the world. And, and I am suddenly not satisfied and content in my circumstance because I want more. And it's the world pushing that on me. I keep seeing commercials like, You're, they're right. Those people that do commercials for the car places like at 11 o'clock during the news, they're right. I do need that new car. And I'm suddenly not happy with what I have. See, that's, there's nothing wrong with a new car, but the, the desire for it, when it becomes greater than my trust in God, that's the world. And then when I start going, yeah, I deserve that. I deserve, that's the flesh, right? I mean, see, this is, when I take that to my king and I say, God, like, I've got an enemy. It's, it's not the devil, it's me. Help, 
These verses, I want you to see this. This is what God does when his children are attacked. When somebody messes, and you're the bride of Christ as a church, when somebody messes with the queen of the king, this is how the king responds. He says, I will defend you. Psalm 140.12. Proverbs 22. 22 and 23. I'll, I'll read a couple of them to you. I won't read all of them to you. Proverbs 22. 22 and 23. Here's what it says. And I love this. Just, just hear God saying this. Don't, don't exploit the poor because they're poor. Don't crush the needy in court. Why? Because you might lose a bunch of money? No, look at verse 23. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. You're like, okay, but that's, that's just about the poor. That's not about the church. Okay, what? You going to play semantics with me about that? So if God's willing to defend the poor, he's suddenly not willing to defend his bride? Are you kidding me? No, he's going to do that for you. He's going to take up your cause. He's going to plunder those who plunder you, which we're going to see in just a minute in this story in Esther chapter 7. That the king is going to plunder Haman, who's trying to plunder the king's queen. Um, just one chapter down, uh, Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11 says this, Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case against you. Just jot down Jeremiah 51:36. And let me read this last one from Romans. Romans chapter 12 verses 17 through 19. Again, we're talking about knowing who's got our back. If if we're going to expose the enemy, Know who has your back, okay? So here's what Paul writes. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Isn't that hard? Like, do you just read that and go, man, come on, Paul. Like, just give me just maybe one day out of the week. <laughs> you know, like maybe Monday's not Man Crush Monday, right? It's like kill everybody that makes me mad Monday, right? But like, give, me, give me something, right? He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Anyone. Everybody say Anyone. That's the enemy, right? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. God, that's a hard verse. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19 is is the key for us. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. This is a really hard thing to grab a hold of, okay? But we've got to learn how to leave room for God's wrath when it comes to our enemies. And sometimes I think we don't leave any room for God to move because we're doing all the moving for Him. We've started the petition. We've started a page on Facebook. We've done everything we can to get rid of the problem physically. And we've left no room for the King of creation, for the God, the sovereign God, to have room for his wrath to operate. Now, I know that sounds really weird, so um, we'll, we'll finish up with something that sounds more positive probably, but it, it sounds weird for me to get up and say, you know, let's leave room for God's wrath, because you're like, that doesn't sound Christian at all. 
But, well, it's probably more Christian than what you were plotting to do in your head, right? <laughs> See, like, if I put them in God's hands, I'm putting them in the hands of a God who wants to redeem their soul, right? I'm putting them in the hands of a God who, we'll see in a second, actually did something about the world, the flesh, and the devil. He, he treats his enemies the way that he treated you. And here's why that's important. We're going to wrap up with number three. Um, this is your third point. If we're going to expose the enemy, we need to know that there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay when we expose the enemy. And now, I want to, I, I hope I say this right. I hope this makes sense. And if not, we'll just get you another pastor for the rest of the existence of the gathering. So I, I want to make sure that I say this clearly, okay? You read this Esther chapter 7, and she's just exposed She's just exposed Haman for who he is. It's the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified. Can you just see the blood like just going out of his face? Like he's totally white. He's terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine. When men are leaving their alcohol behind, things aren't good, right? He left the wine and he went out into the palace garden. He had to go cool off a little bit. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, he's like, I know I'm a dead man, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now, they were not spooning, okay? Back, here, back in the day, like, they, they, she had the whole couch. She's just, like, chilling on the whole couch. And more than likely, at that point, when the king comes back in, ticked at Haman, wondering how am I going to get out of this mess without making myself look bad because that's all about appearances for the king. He probably walked in and saw Haman like, all over the feet of, of his queen, kissing the feet, begging her like, save me, save me, which is ironic, right? He's mad because Mordecai won't bow to him, but now he's bowing to Mordecai's cousin. I love that. Irony is fantastic when it's working against other people. So he walks in, he sees that, and he's like, ah, this is my out. This is my out. He says, are you going to, is it, that you're going to even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That's a pretty good sign. Verse 9, in one of the best verses in the Bible, love irony, love the way that it's written. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, let's just picture this, right? The king has just said, I want to kill him. I want to kill Haman. And one of these attendants, one of these units, he goes, Hey, um, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. It's like, hey, I got an idea. Like, you want to kill him? Hey, guess what? Good news. He built it for you. Just take him there right now and kill him. Because, oh, you know, he wanted to kill Mordecai, and, he, and Mordecai saved you. Like, there's always somebody in there. There's always somebody that's pointing out the obvious, and you're just like, shut up. That was, this, that was this guy, right? Haman's, his face is covering. He's like, shut that guy up, right? Don't remind him about that. And the king said, hang him on it. And here's the, here's the tough verse that I want to make sure I explain clearly. Verse 10. So they hanged Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. This weekend we celebrate Memorial Day. Um, it's a time for our nation to honor the memory of men and women who for years understood the same thing that Esther did. Here's what they understood. When there's an enemy, someone's going to die. When there's an enemy, someone's going to die.
they're going down to serve at the community inn. I didn't make them mad. Just want to make sure you knew that. Everybody's like, dang, that's pretty bold. I don't like that third point. I'm out of here, right? <laughs> they're going to go serve people, which is what we're all about. I love that. Listen, there's a price to pay in order to expose and destroy enemies. Whether it's Haman, the world, the flesh, the devil, some other country that's attacking our freedom, there's a price to pay to destroy our enemies. And what I want you to see is that it was the death of Haman that satisfied the wrath of King Xerxes. So let's talk about God. Because God's not a bloodthirsty madman. He's not up in heaven going, I demand, kill them all. That's not who God is. But sin demands a price, and either we're going to pay it, or we're going to accept the fact that Jesus paid for it on the cross. Those are your only two options. Sin demands a price, and either we pay it, or we accept that Jesus paid it. Let me, let me close this morning reading to you Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, Paul writes, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath? There's the wrath through him. For if, this is important, when we were God's what? When we were God's enemies, wait a second, we could be enemies of God? When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, there was a day when we were enemies of God. Esther, she didn't seek out the death of Haman. Did you notice that? She just pointed him out. Uh, this vile Haman. The king's the one that came up with a plan to kill him. But did you notice what Esther didn't do? Esther didn't say, whoa, whoa, hold on, king. Yeah, I know. He's vile and he deserves to die, but I'll take his place. Esther didn't do that. But that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus exposed the enemy, and the enemy was us. He exposed us. He says, why you are still my enemies, why you deserve to die, when you deserve death and all the punishment that comes from being an enemy of God, I stepped up and didn't just say, this vile Paul Jenkins is the enemy. I said, I'll take his place. That's what happened on the cross. She wasn't willing to die for her enemy, but Jesus was. The beauty of the gospel isn't that enemies of the king are called out. I want to make sure you get that because sometimes I think as Christians, American Christians, we think the goal of the gospel is to call out enemies of God. That's not the goal of the gospel. The gospel is not that enemies are called out, but that enemies of the king are made children of the king because of the death of a king. That's the gospel. Enemies of the king are made children of the king because of the death of a king. Jesus took our place, not just to save us, but to change us. No longer his enemies. We've become friends of God because of the grace of God. Listen, Jesus paid the price to make us family, and that changes everything. 
The big idea that I want you to take this morning is this. Jesus took your place so he could give you grace. Jesus took your place, my place, so he could give you grace. Now think about that. You and I were enemies of a king, exposed for the sinners that we are. And as the king pronounced the death sentence, Jesus stepped in and said, wait. I know the presence of an enemy means that someone has to die. And I'm willing to be that person. That's the gospel. I love that. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We can't just look at Haman and say, what a bad man, because that was us. And Jesus, in a way that's far better than what Esther did, stepped in and took our place. This is grace. He exposed us. Listen to this. He exposed us. <laughs> I mean, like spiritually speaking, we are curtain whoop, ripped, right? Like that's us spiritually speaking apart from Christ. We're just like, uh-huh, I don't even know what to do, right? Totally exposed. But what I want you to see is the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus exposed you and then he chose you. How crazy is that? He's like, no, nah, this, is, this is who he really is. This is the real Paul. And we're just like, oh, turn the lights out. No. And he's like, and I still want him. And I'm still willing to pay the price for him. He took your place so he could give you grace. I want to close this morning out just giving you the chance to respond to that grace. I want you just to close your eyes just for a moment. We're not going to linger long. I just want to give you the chance to respond to this grace. You know, we sing songs about amazing grace and all that stuff, and we're like, man, that's really amazing stuff. I don't really fully know what it means. When you start breaking it down like this, this is why it's amazing. Because we read about Esther and Haman and Xerxes, and suddenly we realize, wait a second, like, that's God and Jesus and us. Like, I am an enemy of a king. And Jesus called us out, totally exposed our sin called us enemies of God and then he took our place so he could give us grace God, I want to follow a king like that I want a king like that to take over my life every waking moment every thought that I have every decision I make I want to know does, does it honor a king now our entire country will we'll honor the memory of people who have fallen fighting for freedom. And this morning is, is about honoring the one who gave it all for the real freedom for us. And if you've never chosen to follow Jesus, if you've never chosen to embrace what he's done on the cross, and this morning when I present, you're like, man, I've never heard it presented that clearly before. I need that salvation. If you've never done that this morning's your day this is your time to say that's me I, I want to follow that king maybe you're here and um, you've been so caught up in seeing other people as the enemy that you've missed the fact that you're the enemy you've been so caught up in saying it's the devil that you've missed the fact that you haven't even gotten to the devil and you feel like you're exposed this morning in some area of your life where you see, man, I'm still opposing God in this area. I know the cross. I know that Jesus died for me. If I died right now, I know I'm going to go to heaven. There's no doubt about that. But I feel in this area of my life, I've, I'm still this enemy of God, and I don't want to be. 
Maybe this morning you feel like you are, man, I'm good with God. But I am being, I am so under attack. And, and Paul, you gave us three enemies and I'm so under attack. I don't even want to spend time figuring out which one it is. I'm just, I'm just tired. Like bullets and arrows are flying. I'm ducking like whatever I can do. It's an ambush. And this morning you need to know this, that you have a king who will take up your cause and he will fight for you. And he's not ambushed. He's fighting for you. Your situation at work didn't catch him off guard. What your spouse said to you on the way to church this morning didn't catch him off guard. What your kids did last week didn't catch him off guard. Phone call about your finances that made your heart sink did not catch him off guard. You have a king who takes up your cause and fights for you.